You can take your Bibles and turn them with me to the book of Genesis chapter 22. Genesis 22. Uh, If you don't have a Bible, there are some scattered underneath the seats throughout the sanctuary. Feel free to use one of those. Feel free to actually claim it as your own if you don't own a Bible. Genesis 22. One of the major themes in the book of Genesis uh, is offspring. Uh, After God had created our forefather Adam and our foremother Eve and placed them in a perfect world where there was no sorrow or pain or sickness or death, Uh, the man and a woman enticed by the serpent, enticed by the devil, decided that they would not trust God to provide for them and that they could be their own gods, and so they revolted against their Creator. And in response, God banished them from that good land and sent them out into a world cursed by sin and suffering and death. It's the world where you and I live today, as humanity continues to follow in Adam's rebellious footsteps. But God, in His grace and in His mercy, had in place a plan to make things right through offspring. And in Genesis chapter 3, we we found the first redemptive promise of God that the offspring of the serpent, those who would continue to follow the devil in rebellion against God, would have conflict with God's people, known as the offspring of the woman. But the good news is that from the offspring of the woman would come forth one particular offspring who would win victory over the serpent, crushing his head and reversing the death spiral of the universe and bringing about the restoration and reversal of all things that went wrong in the garden. And so the rest of Genesis and the rest of the Bible tracks this unfolding story, this redemptive promise of offspring. That's why in Genesis chapter 4, when Eve has a son, she rejoices and triumphantly declares that with the help of the Lord, I have gotten a man. I have offspring. She thinks her son might be the one. But her hopes are shattered when this boy, Cain, grows up and proves himself to be the offspring of the serpent as he, as he kills her other son, a godly man named Abel. Neither of them were the promised son. The storyline continues when God gives Eve another son named Seth. And Eve celebrates again and says, God has appointed to me another offspring. And Seth is promising He is the start of a new generation of people who will be known for proclaiming the name of the Lord. But eventually, as good as Seth may have been, he dies, proving himself to be subject to the curse of death like everyone else. But the Bible story then begins to focus on the family line of Seth. And in chapter 5, one of Seth's descendants named Lamech has a son and names him Noah, which sounds like the Hebrew word for rest. And Lamech says, this one shall bring us relief, he shall bring us rest from the curse. And Noah is very promising, right? In fact, as the world gets worse and worse, as people descend into violence and all kinds of sin against God, Noah boldly stands alone as one who loves and trusts God. And in chapter 6 through 9, when God unleashes His judgment upon sinful humanity through a global flood, He preserves Noah and his family in the ark, and Noah emerges from that ark as the head of a new humanity, a new beginning for mankind. But sadly, Noah himself descends into sin, and the last story of his life is a big disappointment 
And it's clear that Noah is not the one either. But the Bible continues to focus on this family line. And as we get further uh, on in the story, we have a further narrowing in Genesis 11 when the spotlight then is put on one of Noah's sons named Shem, who has a great-grandson named Eber. How many have heard of Eber? Ah, yeah, not too many of you. Yeah, Eber would not be very noteworthy except for the fact that from that name Eber comes the word Hebrew, which of course becomes a very important word in the Bible. And Eber has a great, 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 great grandson, and his name is Abram. And now the spotlight is on this man. And God appears to Abraham, and He expands upon that Genesis 3 promise, promising Abraham not only offspring, but land for that offspring and worldwide blessing through that offspring. And we've been following Abraham now for quite a while in this series for the past few months. He's been enrolled, you could say, in the school of faith, learning how to live for God, which is very important for us because Abraham is called the father of all who believe. So if you're a believer, you want to pay close attention to Abraham's life and learn from him. And in these past few months in this sermon series, we've seen many ups and downs in Abraham's journey. There have been moments he's uh, done well, and there's been moments, to be honest, where he got a big fat F written on his exam. But all of the things that Abraham has been going through, both the highs and the lows and the good moments and the bad, all of these things have been preparing him for this one singular moment in Genesis 22 where we now come to Abraham's most significant test yet in the school of faith. In the, in the mountain range of Abraham's life, we are now approaching what is the peak of that mountain, the very climax of Abraham's story, and where the absolute essence of faith is demonstrated. And here, Abraham shines to the glory of God and for our benefit and instruction. So let's climb to the summit with Abraham together and see what kind of view God wants us to take in. Please stand with me now out of honor and reverence for the reading of the words of our God. Genesis chapter 22, Moses writes under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, after these things God tested Abraham and said to him, Abraham, and he said, here I am. And he said, take your son, your only son Isaac, whom you love, and go to the land of Moriah and offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains of which I shall tell you. So Abraham rose early in the morning, saddled his donkey, and took two of his young men with him, and his son Isaac. And he cut the wood for the burnt offering, and arose and went to the place of which God had told him. On the third day, Abraham lifted up his eyes and saw the place from afar. Then Abraham said to his young men, "'Stay here with the donkey. I and the boy will go over there and worship and come again to you.' And Abraham took the wood of the burnt offering and laid it on Isaac his son." And he took in his hand the fire and the knife, so they went both of them together. And Isaac said to his father, Abraham, my father. And he said, here I am, my son. He said, behold, the fire and the wood, but where is the lamb for a burnt offering? Abraham said, God will provide for himself the lamb for a burnt offering, my son. So they went both of them together. When they came to the place which God had told him, Abraham built the altar there and laid the wood in order and bound Isaac his son and laid him on the altar on top of the wood. 
Then Abraham reached out his hand and took the knife to slaughter his son. But the angel of the Lord called to him from heaven and said, Abraham, Abraham. And he said, Here I am. And he said, Do not lay your hand on the boy or do anything to him. For now I know that you fear and you have not withheld your son, your only son, from me. And Abraham lifted up his eyes and looked. And behold, behind him was a ram caught in a thicket by his horns. And Abraham went and took the ram and offered it up as a burnt offering instead of his son. So Abraham called the name of that place, The Lord Will Provide. As it is said to this day, On the mount of the Lord it shall be provided. And the angel of the Lord called to Abraham a second time from heaven and said, By myself I have sworn, declares the Lord, because you have done this and have not withheld your son, your only son, I will surely bless you. And I will surely multiply your offspring as the stars of heaven and as the sand that is on the seashore. And your offspring shall possess the gate of his enemies. And in your offspring the nations of the earth be blessed because you have obeyed my voice. So Abraham returned to his young men. And they arose and went together to Beersheba, and Abraham lived in Beersheba. Now after these things, it was told to Abraham, Behold, Milcah also has borne children to your brother Nahor. Uz, his firstborn, Buz, his brother, Kamul, the father of Aram, Jesed, Hazo, Pildash, Jipla, and Bethuel. Bethuel fathered Rebekah. These eight Milcah bore to Nahor, Abraham's brother. Moreover, his concubine, whose name was Remuah, bore Teba, Gaham, Tahash, and Makkah. Let's pray. Flowers wither the grass. The grass withers, the flower fades, and the word of the Lord endures forever. Father, we acknowledge that this is your holy and inspired word, and so I pray that you would help us to give appropriate attention to this word. I pray that you would help us to heed this word. I pray that your word would encourage and convict, would counsel and bring encouragement. And I also pray for those who might be in our midst this morning who have not received Christ as Lord and Savior, that this might be the day of their salvation. In Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. So there are three observations um, I want to make from this text in regards to to what God wants to say to us in this story. And, And the first thing that we learn is that God will test his people, that God will test His people. Verse 1 says, after these things, God tested Abraham and said to him, Abraham, and he said, here I am. Now, the nature, uh, the nature of this test is nothing less than shocking. He commands Abraham to make a sacrificial offering. Now, the idea of an offering to God in and of itself, that's not a shock, <clears throat> We've seen offerings before from God's people in Genesis. Uh, we go all the way back, really, to Genesis 4. You have uh, Cain and Abel bringing offerings to, uh, to the Lord, and we learn from Abel's offering that, that part of what you're doing in an offering is bringing your absolute best, your very best, to God uh, as, a, as a means of worship and thanksgiving and praise. So we've seen that kind of thing before. But Genesis 22 is shocking because of what Abraham is told to sacrifice. Verse 2, He says, take your son, your only son Isaac, whom you love, and go to the land of Moriah and offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains of which I shall tell you. Now that is shocking. 
And notice how with each phrase it seems that God is just driving the knife deeper and deeper into Abraham's heart. God refers to Isaac three times in increasingly powerful and agonizing ways. He says, take your son. But not just your son. He says, take your only son. Now, some of you are raising an eyebrow. Only son? Uh, what, about, what about Abraham's son, Ishmael? Well, Ishmael was not the special son that God promised to Abraham and Sarah. He was the result of an illegitimate union between Abraham and Hagar. We saw that back in Genesis 16. And that that illegitimate union between Abraham and Hagar was a result of a foolish plan that Sarah concocted when she got impatient and waiting for God to provide a son for her. And she thought maybe that this other son that could come from that union, that one could count as the special son of promise. But God here and calling Isaac Abraham's only son, is telling us that he does not regard Ishmael as the son of promise. Isaac is the special one. Isaac is the fulfillment of the promise. But not only does God say, take your son, and not only does He say, take your only son, Isaac, but then He says, take this son whom you love. The intense love and affection that Abraham had for Isaac is highlighted in God's command. Parents, you can imagine how Abraham must have felt about Isaac. And when you think about how you regard your own children, then the love and the devotion and the affection that you have for your own children and and how you would do anything for them and how you have hopes and you have dreams for your children. Abraham would have had all kinds of hopes and dreams for his son. And now Abraham is told to slit his throats on the altar, dismember the body, and consume every part of him in the fire. That's how animal sacrifices were done, and that's what God was telling Abraham to do to Isaac. So you can imagine the shockwave of horror that would have engulfed him in that moment upon receiving this command from God. This was the son Abraham had waited for years to have. This son was to be the son through whom God would give Abraham offspring as numerous as the stars in the sky. And through this son, the entire world would be blessed. All of the promises that God has been making to Abraham were bound up in this boy. And now, I've got to kill him? Really? And what might that say about the character of this God that he has been serving for so long? You know, the pagan peoples around Abraham had gods that demanded appeasement through child sacrifice, but God doing this appears to run against the grain of everything else that we and Abraham know about God, how confusing all of this must have been, and how crushed this old father's heart must have been. But there is one thing that we know that Abraham doesn't know. This is a test. This is a test. And at the heart of the test is whether or not Abraham loves and trusts God no matter what, and whether Abraham treasured God over his son. And we discover here that God is a God who commands and demands that our loyalty and our affection for Him be greater than our loyalty and our affection for any other thing. And if you are thinking, man, I am glad that God does not make those kinds of demands upon me. You need to think again. 
Now, now, in one sense, of course, Abraham's test is unique. God will never ask anyone again to offer up their son or daughter as a burnt offering. And all the boys and girls in this room said, amen. It's a very good thing. But in another sense, what God demands of you is no less than what He demanded of Abraham. There was a time once where Jesus was being followed by a large number of people, and He turned to them, and He says to this crowd, If anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. Whoever does not bear his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. Now, I wonder how many people in that crowd stuck around after Jesus said something like that. Now, Jesus' point in all that is not don't love your family. When he says, hate your own father and mother, he means love them less than me. See me as greater than them. Cherish me more than them. Uh, Be more loyal to me than to them. Jesus is demanding that he be at the very center of your world and at the center of your affections. And in that sense, he is demanding of you exactly what God demanded of Abraham. And sometimes God will bring tests into your life and my life uh, to help grow our faith uh, so that we can just get to that point, uh, to help us more and more cherish God, uh, cherish Him more than anything else. And so, the book of James, uh, it says in James chapter 1, "'Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness.'" And let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. Now, God, so God does not test you because He is mean. He tests you because He loves you, and He always has a positive and beneficial purpose for the testing of your faith. And, and we see here in James that His aim is to produce steadfastness, in other words, to produce stronger faith. And the thing that God uses to build up your faith and to grow you spiritually is trials of various kinds. Now, the Greek word translated trials is the word parasimos, and that refers to things that come into your life that break the pattern of tranquility or happiness. And one of the things that breaks that pattern of tranquility in our lives is when we lose or someone threatens to take away the things that we love and cherish the most. Uh, When our plans, when our hopes, when our dreams are threatened, and very often uh, things that we love and desire greatly are good things, like Abraham's love for his son, uh, or your desire to not be sick, or, or your desire to have a good marriage, or to have a job that pays the bills. All of those are good things. Nothing wrong with any of those things. But when the trial comes and those things are threatened, it breaks that pattern of tranquility, it threatens our happiness, and the question in that moment is, how do we respond? If God is taking those things that we want, if He's taking those things away from us, are we going to, with a humble and submissive attitude, receive that and trust God in that and be able to say that whatever my lot thou hast taught me to say, it is well with my soul? Uh, to say He gives and He takes away, but blessed be the name of the Lord. And we have that attitude because we have God and we regard Him as a greater treasure than all those other things. Or 
Will we get angry with God because God isn't letting us have what we want? And we rebel against God because we love these other things more than we love God. That could have been an option for Abraham. Abraham could have said, you know what, God? I have followed you and I have served you all of these years. I have made sacrifices for you, but this is one sacrifice that I am not willing to make. I'm not willing to let you have this. You will not take away my dream. Abraham could have responded that way. Many people respond that way today. They follow God as long as life is going the way that they want. But when God no longer delivers what they think that they should have, they turn around and they abandon God. And I've seen that time and time again. And they demonstrate that they were never really following God in the first place. Uh, They were following after His gifts. They, They loved God's gifts more than they loved the gift giver, more than they loved God. And so those things that they most desperately wanted are proven to be idols in their lives, are proven to be things that are more important to them than God. Charles Spurgeon writes that God tested Abraham's love. Spurgeon goes on to say, it may be that Isaac, though a gift from God, began to usurp God's place, and Isaac may become an idol. The dearest thing we have, the most precious, the most beloved, may still become an abomination by being made into an idol to keep us away from God. Whatever your idols may be, they will bring you a world of trouble, for you must love nothing in comparison with God. He must be first, and everything else far away in the background, no rivals will he endure. Spurgeon's exactly right. And God will use tests to expose and to wean you off of your idols, or to prevent certain things from ever becoming idols. And so, what seems to be unkind and unloving of God is actually God protecting us, uh, because the psalmist says that the sorrows of those who run after another God shall multiply. That's true whether that God is an idol of metal or stone, or whether it's the idol of career or family or health. Sooner or later, the path of all idolatry ends in sorrow because ultimately no idol can give you what you really need. Uh, No idol can give you that lasting peace and satisfaction. Only in God can such things be found. And so God will test the faith of His people, even stretching our faith uh, um, in the areas that we are most sensitive to. And with Abraham, his most sensitive point had to do with his precious son. Second observation. God's people can trust God in the test. God's people can trust God in the test. So God here is asking Abraham, in a, in a way, to, ask, to act against common sense, to act against his natural affections, to act against his lifelong hope. And we can imagine how confused Abraham must have been when he first received this command from the Lord. It didn't make sense, and obedience would be painful. But amazingly, look at Abraham's response in verse 3. So Abraham rose early in the morning, saddled his donkey, and took two of his young men with him and his son Isaac. And he cut the wood for the burnt offering and arose and went to the place of which God told him. Now, some suggest that Abraham rose early because he did not sleep a wink that night. And I can imagine that to be the case. Uh, His mind reeling over this command, his heart breaking over his son, this one whom not only Abraham's life was bound up in, but all the promises of God were bound up in. 
I can only imagine Abraham as the hours tick by, just staring at the ceiling, the weight of God's command crushing his heart. But nevertheless, at the crack of dawn, Abraham immediately obeys. No hesitation, no resistance. But there is perhaps a hint of his stunned and sorrowful mental state. Uh, One commentator notes the order of Abraham's actions, first saddling the donkey and then cutting the wood. That's illogical, right? You would do the the opposite way, actually. That may point to Abraham's disoriented frame of mind. But nevertheless, he obeys. He, He does what God says, even though it is hard and even though it seems to make no sense whatsoever. Verse 4, on the third day, Abraham lifted up his eyes and saw the place from afar. Surely that journey to that mountain must have been the longest three days of Abraham's life. What would have been going through your mind during those three days? Again, putting ourselves in Abraham's sandals, uh, Ligon Duncan writes that the command itself seems inconsistent with the promise God had promised it through that through the line of Isaac would the blessing come, and now he's being told to take Isaac's life. How detrimental, how detrimental would obedience to this command be to Abraham's marriage? How would he look at Sarah in the face again? How would he speak to Sarah with the blood of Isaac splattered on his garment and say, Sarah, I have taken our son's life? Abraham could have argued with God. He could have said, Lord, uh, what kind of witness is this going to be to the pagans around us? Uh, is it going to say that you are one of these child sacrifice receiving gods just like their barbaric gods? You know, sometimes, sometimes we will only obey God to the point where it makes sense to us, only to the point where it won't hurt. Sometimes Christians will justify disobedience because the path to obey is too hard. And I wonder if there are some hard things that the Scriptures are calling you to do, and you are hesitant because the command goes against the dictates of your own heart, goes beyond your own common sense, and you would rather lean on your own understanding than follow the wisdom and the Word of God. But Abraham is showing us here that we as God's people are to obey anyway, regardless of whether it makes sense to us or not, regardless of whether or not it's difficult. We don't argue about it. We don't fight about it. Uh, We don't say, well, as soon as I understand all of this to my satisfaction, then I will obey. No. You rise up early in the morning, you saddle your donkey, and you get to it. But how? How was Abraham able to obey when it was surely so perplexing and so hard? What sustained his obedience over those three long, agonizing days? And likewise, how can we obey when we are called to do something very hard? I can tell you what doesn't sustain obedience, certainly not raw willpower. Willpower will not be sufficient for Abraham to slit his son's throat. He, like any other parent, surely would waver in those last moments and quit if he's obeying in his own strength. And we get our first hint as to what is at the bottom of Abraham's incredible obedience in verse 5. They finally get to the mountain, verse 5, then Abraham says to his young men, stay here with the donkey, I and the boy will go over there and worship and come again to you. The verbs in that sentence, in the Hebrew, are first person plural verbs. Grammar matters. I and the boy will go. I and the boy will worship. And guess what? I and the boy 
will come again to you. Now, some commentators have suggested, well, Abraham is saying this because he doesn't want to alarm his servants. If he said, I and the boy are going up, and I'll be back a moment, I'll be back later, then the servants could get suspicious of that. Oh, wait a minute, two going up, one going down, what's going on here? That's not what's going on. Abraham's not lying. He used to protect himself by lying. We read about that before. Uh, He's grown since then. Abraham isn't lying. He is very serious. Because somewhere during this three-day journey, as Abraham has been thinking and wrestling and agonizing and praying through all of this, somewhere, and we don't know when, maybe it wasn't even until that third day, somewhere during this time, Abraham comes to the quiet, settled, firm conviction that, yes, both of them are going up that mountain and there will be a sacrifice, and yes, both of them are coming down that mountain. He does not know how it's going to happen. He just believes it. Why? Is it blind faith? I don't think so. I'll tell you why in a moment. So, in verse 6, they get to the mountain, and Isaac is going through his little sacrifice checklist. Wood? Check. Fire? Knife? Check. Lamb? Lamb? Isaac still doesn't know. Abraham has kept this to himself the whole while. And Abraham turns to his son, and he says in verse 8, God will provide for himself the lamb for a burnt offering, my son. So they both went together. God will provide. That could be translated, God will see to it. Again, Abraham is not lying. He's speaking from a firm conviction in that moment. Derek Kidner says that Abraham's response combines complete certainty about God with complete openness as to detail. In other words, he's sure of God. He's just not sure of God's method. He doesn't know how God will provide. He just knows God will. Keep in mind, when Abraham says God will provide a lamb, he's not thinking that a ram is going to appear at the end of this story. You need to know that Abraham still has every intention of killing Isaac. He is still in the process of obeying God. And so, what was it that sustained Abraham's obedience? Yes, it was faith, but it wasn't blind faith, because by now... Abraham has had a history with God and a history of his faithfulness. Time and time again, Abraham had seen God's faithfulness to him, had seen God's faithfulness to his word and to his promises. And most recently, Abraham had seen God bring life out of the deadness of Sarah's womb. And somehow, he must have inferred, God can be trusted to bring life out of this situation as well. And Abraham, through this trial, has an epiphany uh, where he realizes that God is a God to be trusted no matter what. God made promises. God promised numerous offspring. Isaac would have numerous descendants. God promised that this offspring would inherit this land. And God promised that in the fullness of time, through this offspring, the entire world would be blessed. That's what God said, and none of that can happen if Isaac is dead and stays dead. And the logic of faith is telling Abraham that if I'm killing Isaac, 
and yet both of us are coming off this mountain alive, I'm about to witness a resurrection. That's amazing. The doctrine of the resurrection has not been taught in this point, at this point in, in Genesis. And yet Abraham, again, using the logic of faith and his trust in the character of God, is coming to that conclusion. Not making that up. Author of Hebrews says this, by faith, Abraham, when he was tested, offered up Isaac, and he who had received the promises was in the act of offering up his only son, of whom it was said, through Isaac shall your offspring be named. He considered that God was able even to raise him from the dead. Do you know that? Abraham knew that God would provide somehow. Because God had to keep His Word. Because God always keeps His Word. doesn't matter if the situation is dark. doesn't matter if the situation is bleak. doesn't matter if the situation doesn't make sense in my eyes. doesn't matter if I don't understand all the details. God said it. I believe it. That settles it. And oh, my friends, how much Abraham has grown compared to things that we have read in prior chapters. This is the same Abraham who in the past battled unbelief, who lied and and schemed on more than one occasion to save his own life because he didn't trust God's promises to protect him, who at one point was prepared to adopt his servant as his son because he just couldn't see how God was going to make good on his word and give him and Sarah a baby. This is the same Abraham who, who when, when Sarah suggested that they help God out by bringing a younger, fertile woman into the picture, Abraham said, yes, dear. All of Abraham's mistakes revolved around his inability to trust that the Lord would provide. And yet, time and again, God had proved himself faithful to Abraham. And now, by the time they reach Mount Moriah, Abraham has finally let go of his fears, of his trust in his own strength and wisdom and understanding, and now he says with confidence, the Lord will provide. And so Abraham and his son trudge up the mountain. And it may well be that with each step up that mountain, the question that Abraham had asked in Genesis 18.25 becomes the anchor for his soul in this moment of moments. That question that he asked, shall not the judge of all the earth do what is right? Yes, even here, in this moment, even when God doesn't seem to make any sense, uh, God is good, God is righteous, God knows what is best, and God always, always keeps His word, period. And it is that faith, brothers and sisters, that confidence in God's word that, and that confidence in God's promises that fuels Abraham's obedience. And it is faith and confidence in God's word that will fuel your obedience. If you're going through a difficult test even now, go back to the word, go back to the promises, go back to what he said, go back to God's prior faithfulness in your own life and know that the Lord will see to it. He will provide. Finally, third observation, God will provide in the midst of our test. God will provide for his people. As the story unfolds, Abraham prepares the altar in the wood and binds Isaac to the altar So by now, Isaac knows what's going on, don't you think? And Isaac submits to that. Isaac's probably a teenager now. 
Don't think baby. Think strapping 16-year-old who is big and long and lanky and eats a lot, like my 16-year-old. Isaac could have easily overpowered old father Abraham, pushed him down the mountain, ran away. Could have done that. But he submits to this. He submits to this, guys. Because evidently, Abraham has taught him well of God's promises and that God always keeps His Word no matter what. And so now this also becomes an act of faith for young Isaac. And so we read in verse 10 that Abraham reached out his hand and took the knife to slaughter his son. But the angel of the Lord called to him from heaven and said, Abraham, Abraham, and he said, here I am. And he said, do not lay your hand on the boy or do anything for him, for now I know that you fear God, seeing you have not withheld your son, your only son, from me. So this is the heart of the test. Does Abraham fear, cherish, and trust God and His Word above all things? And when God says, now I know that you fear God, we should not take that as God did not know that Abraham feared God and he was on the edge of his seat like the rest of us. Uh, We talked about this in Sunday school this morning. You should come to Sunday school. We talked about this in adult Bible study, the omniscience of God, that God knows everything. God knows all things. This is anthropomorphic language. uh, We've talked about this before. It's God speaking on a level that humans can understand. Uh, God knows of Abraham's fear of God, but now it's been demonstrated by his actions. It's been demonstrated in a clear way. And just as important, Abraham knows that he fears God. Abraham sees faith in himself that he never saw before. And what's more, we know that Abraham fears God. And we know what the fear of God looks like. It's not lip service. It's not a fair-weather commitment where we stick with God only when things are easy. It's a steadfast devotion and a clinging on to God in love and trust, even in the most difficult trials of our lives. What's more... Abraham also sees that his faith in God is well-placed. God does provide. He does provide. But he provides in a way that is totally different than what Abraham thought, uh, which is often the case. Uh, we know God will provide for us, but let's, not be, ca- let's be careful to not put God in a box and assume he must provide this way or that way. Now, Ab- Abraham thought he knew. He was right to know that God would provide, but he missed judged how God would do it. Abraham's thinking, my boy will be resurrected. God is thinking substitution. Very often, God will surprise us and provide for us in very unexpected ways. And of course, His way of provision is always best. And you can be sure that when Abraham saw that ram caught in that thicket, he wholeheartedly agreed that God's ways are best. And so, verse 13 says that Abraham offered up that ram in the place of his son. Can you imagine the amazing worship service that they had in that moment? I didn't have to do this to my boy. My boy is here. My boy is alive. Praise God. He's faithful. And Abraham names that place, the Lord will provide, or Jehovah Jireh. Uh, Kent Hughes writes that we see that the God who tests is also the God who provides. The tester is the provider. Both truths are actual fact, but they must be appropriated by faith. When God tests you, He will provide for you. 
As we go through the test of growing a greater faith, as God tests us and stretches us, we believe and He provides. So when we are called to give up our Isaacs, so to speak, those things that are most precious to us, we need to understand when we do it that God is Jehovah Jireh, that God provides. And the God who provides now reaffirms the promises that appeared to be in jeopardy when Abraham held that knife over Isaac. In verse 17, we again are reminded of the promise of numerous offspring. And by the way, just as an aside, uh, that, that little genealogy there at the end of the chapter that most people probably skip over stuff like that, uh, there's a very important little verse in there in verse 23 where it mentions a little lady named Rebecca. And we'll meet Rebecca in a couple of chapters. She will become the wife of Isaac, and through that union, the promises will go forward. There will be additional offspring. And in verse 18, we see a reaffirmation of the global blessing to come through the offspring, but there's something new mentioned. It's at the end of verse 17, we learn something more. God says that your offspring shall possess the gates of his enemies. That has to do with victory over the enemies. It has to do with conquest. Abraham's descendants will be victorious over their enemies. How encouraging that would have been to the original audience of Genesis as they're on the verge of entering into the promised land to fight the Canaanites, how encouraging that would be that uh, they could know that the God who provided for Abraham would provide victory for them even when it appears with their eyes that the odds are against them. They will possess the gates of their enemies. But notice how the ESV translates verse 17. God says that your offspring shall possess the gates not of their enemies, but of His enemies. Singular there. It reminds me of Galatians chapter 3 and Paul's conversation about offspring, and he talks about offspring, uh, plural, numerous, but then he narrows it down uh, to the singular, to one singular offspring. Your offspring shall possess the gates of his enemies, which suggests, just like Genesis 3.15 does, that from the numerous offspring of the woman, there will arise one special, one singular offspring who will be a conqueror and shall be victorious over all of his enemies, including the greatest enemy, that old serpent, whom God promised long ago would have his head crushed by the offspring of the woman. And indeed, Genesis 22 actually gives us a glimpse of how Jesus Christ, the son of Abraham, the descendant of Isaac, will defeat the serpent. He will win the victory by being the lamb that will die in the place of his wayward people. Isaac, marching up that mountain, was as good as dead. Just like everyone who sins against God. As the Bible says, the wages of sin is death. A sinful man faces eternal execution in hell for his crimes against God. Uh, indeed, the Genesis Rabbah, which is a pre-Christian Jewish midrash, comments that Isaac with the wood on his back was like a condemned man carrying his own cross. Indeed, the image was truly prophetic of Jesus, who John's gospel describes as bearing his own cross, to the place of death, to the place of a skull. And yes, in case you're wondering, yes, Mount Moriah was where the temple was built, where those lambs were slain, and and was just a short walk from where Jesus himself would be slaughtered. Because that question that Isaac asked, where is the lamb for the offering, was ultimately answered 
2,000 years later by John the Baptist when he pointed to Jesus and he said, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And so the prophet Isaiah says of Jesus, He was oppressed, he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. Like a lamb that is led to the slaughter and like a sheep that goes before its shearers is silent, so he opened not his mouth. And so it turns out that God is not like the capricious gods of paganism. He does not demand appeasement from his people by having us offer up our firstborn sons whom we love. He instead appeases his wrath towards our sin through offering up his own son whom he loved. The love that Abraham had for Isaac paled in comparison to the love that God the Father has for his son. And while the hand of Abraham was stayed and prevented from killing Isaac, the father did not stay his hand in slaughtering his own son. He went all the way. As it says in Isaiah 53, we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and with his wounds we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We've turned everyone to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity or the sin of us all. Jesus Christ, the Lamb of God, was slain in the place of sinners so that any sinner who would put their hope in him would be saved from execution. God has provided the Lamb for you so that you don't have to die. Only fools would say no to such a gracious and generous gift. But even better, What Abraham anticipated for Isaac actually happened with Jesus because after God the Father slew his own son, Jesus Christ was miraculously raised from the dead so that all the fullness of God's promises might come true through him so that he might bring global blessing for all the nations, all the peoples who would believe in him. And one day this same lamb will return as a lion, as a conqueror, possessing the gates of all his enemies, and all of Abraham's offspring, all who share the faith of Abraham, will rule and reign with Christ in the new heavens and the new earth forever, where all the things that went wrong in the garden will finally be made right. And in the meantime, while we wait for Christ's return, we can have assurance that the Lord will provide for us. God's offering up of Jesus, of His very best gift is not only a demonstration of His love for us, but also proof that everything that we need, every other thing that we need, will be provided for us. As Paul writes to the Romans in Romans chapter 8, what then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare His own Son, but gave Him up for us all, how will He not also with Him graciously give us all things? And that's another way of saying, the Lord will provide. Let's pray.